I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Ryan, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, Nathan J. Brown, a professor of political science and international affairs at George Washington University and a non-resident senior fellow of the Middle East program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, joins us to discuss his article, There Might Be No Day After in Gaza, which deals with the potentially grim dystopian future ahead for Gaza after the ongoing war has come to a close. All that and more in the conversation to follow with Nathan J. Brown, and with that being said, let's get right to it. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very, very happy to be speaking with, Nathan J. Brown, Professor of Political Science and International Affairs. Uh, he works with the Carnegie Endowment, and he has a piece up there that we're going to be talking about entitled there might be no day after in Gaza. Uh, very depressing piece, but I think very uh, hard-nosed and very thoughtful. And I think we need more of that these days. Uh, how are you doing, uh, Nathan J. Brown? Good, good. Uh, very happy to be here. And no, the news is not good. Real quick, uh, just to start out, you've written about this issue of what's been called the one-state reality. I've had uh, Ian Lustick on before, who has also written about this concept of the one-state reality. And at times, I think I've uh, myself maybe misunderstood the one-state reality. Uh, so what do we mean by the one-state reality? Because it's very different than necessarily saying, I support a one-state democratic solution. Yeah, absolutely. Ian's actually one of the contributors to the book that we uh, that we edited. Um, but the idea goes 
back before our book, it get, goes back before Ian's book, I started hearing it from Palestinians in the, uh, oh, really about 20 years ago. And, you know, about the, wouldn't talk of the two-state solution came up and they basically said, look, that's over. Um, what we live in right now is a single state and it's all controlled by Israel. And they would definitely say um, one state reality or one state non-solution. They would start using phrases like that. They weren't saying this is great. This is the end. This is a solution. They were saying that's the reality, that if you take a look at it, uh, the territories that Israel controlled before 1967 and then that it occupied in 1967, the West Bank and Gaza, there's one state there and it controls the air. It controls what goes on underneath. It controls entry and exit and economics and so on. And so to understand this as um, anything other than a single state is misleading. And not only that, Talk about the two-state solution. Math, what was going on. It was as if you would take a look at this reality and say, oh, yeah, 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 it's just about to become something else. As soon as they sit down and agree. Well, they weren't agreeing and they were getting farther from agreement. So what looked like a sort of temporary Israeli occupation began to morph into people's minds into this is, this is a reality that we deal with and we don't like it, but we can't say it's not there. In that regard, and we'll move on to the Gaza article, but does the one-state reality and the forestalling of a potential two-state solution, does it actually almost um, – I don't want to say it almost forces the one-state solution into uh, you know, being more and more the direction that a lot of Palestinian Americans uh, uh, that are supporters of Palestine go into, but does it sort of bring us closer to – uh, people saying that the one state is going to be the only solution? I think it does for some people. Uh, it doesn't necessarily for all of them. When you talk to Palestinians who live there, um, ask them kind of what they want, they tend not to talk in terms of solutions. They basically say, we want the occupation dead. We want our rights. We This is a rights-based struggle. We need to move towards that. Um, and, you know, I know one Palestinian just says, you know, one state, two state, 50 states, I don't care. Um, and that's a real shift because the Palestinian national movement was always about we're Palestinians, we need Palestine needs to be a state. And now they're saying, who cares whether it's a state or not? We just want our rights. So some do go so far as to say we need a binational state, we need an Islamic state, we need a this kind of state, we need a that kind of state. Most of them just want their rights. So then um, moving on from that, and I'm, I'm glad you could clarify that, because like I said, I think I, I've even uh, confused the, the one state solution and the one state reality. And I apologize to my listeners for that if I've done that in the past. But uh, so this piece you wrote, there might be no day after in Gaza. Uh, I don't know where to start with it, but I, maybe the best place to start is there's a lot of talk of, uh, you know, post-war planning for Gaza. And I, I've had guests on that say, oh, you know, they... We really need to get the Arab states involved. You know, we need to get Qatar to turn its page on on supporting uh, or harboring Hamas leaders and get them to, you know, take care of Gaza after uh, the war. Or, you know, the U.N. needs to step in. I don't think you're as optimistic about either of those uh, two proposed um, ways of dealing with post-war Gaza. Yeah. So the reason I wrote the piece was after reading a few of those, 
and discovering a few things. Number one was a lot of the people writing them had absolutely no idea of the context. I mean, I remember one basically saying, okay, first thing that should happen is that Gazans should write their own constitution. Well, we were just talking about one state reality of Gaza. First, Gaza has a constitution. I mean, it doesn't work very well, but it's there. Um, but second, and Hamas didn't write it. Um, but second, um, it, I mean, the, the constitution it has is for the Palestinian Authority, for the West Bank and Gaza. If Gaza were to write their own constitution, that would be like a declaration of independence. And then you'd be talking about three-state solution. I mean, you know, this just didn't have any purchase in reality. So that was one thing that I noticed. And the second thing was the analyses tended to be um, doing what you just did, putting in lots of shoulds. The Arab states should take over. The Palestinian Authority should come back. Remember one reading one that says, well, the first step is Hamas should release the hostages. And I thought, well, yeah, of course they should. And, you know, peace, love, and brotherhood should prevail. That's not a plan. That's a prayer. And it's not going to happen. So let's look at what people are actually going to do and what people are actually doing. And before assigning roles, Let's talk to the people that or the the states or the agencies or the organizations and see, are they really willing to take on this role? I was going to say in, in regards to the talk of, oh, you know, Israel needs to work with the Palestinian Authority to get control of Gaza over to the Palestinian Authority. I've been very confused by that line of thought because, A, I think a lot of Palestinians are not uh, necessarily trustful of the Palestinian Authority right now, rightfully or, or wrongly. Uh, and then also, I mean, we've seen all the articles about, uh, you know, Hamas being propped up in a way by the Netanyahu uh, government in order to divide and conquer Palestinians. So I, I don't think uh, Israel is going to want to work with the Palestinian Authority. <laughs> Yes. I mean, yeah, let me start there on the Israeli side. That isn't just Netanyahu. That is a, that's a policy that really goes back to when Israel withdrew from Gaza back in 2005. It was like, let's, let's um, uh, withdraw, close the place down, a close entrance and exit to it, and, um, um, and let Gaza fend for itself. And so the idea that there is a divided Palestinian national movement, well, that's not so bad for a lot of Israeli leaders, and certainly those on on on, on the right. Um, so the idea that Israel should be cooperating with a strengthened and unified Palestinian national movement would be a sea change. It's not impossible that the shock of what's going on right now may change some Israeli minds, but it may not be in, in, in that direction, maybe in the opposite direction. We'll need to like, you know, divide them all the more. On the Palestinian side, so to go back to what is the Palestinian Authority? It was created as a part of the Oslo process back in the uh, early to mid-1990s. And it was not ever clear in those in the agreements between Israel and the Palestinians what it was supposed to become. But in Palestinian minds, it was clear this was the kernel of the Palestinian state. We're building a state and the Palestinian Authority is going to have ministries, it's going to have a parliament, it's going to write school curricula, it's going to have rules and regulations and market inspectors and, you know, weights and measures and all, and, you know, a representation of the UN. And then it didn't happen. And Palestinians realized it wasn't happening in about a quarter century ago. And so, but it's still there. So what's it doing there? It's not building a state. It's uh, it's just 
They're administering things, essentially a collection of uh, municipal governments, and it's also fulfilling its obligations under the agreements with Israel for what's called security coordination, meaning that they are supposed to suppress tax attacks on Israel and cooperate with Israel um, on that. So the phrase the Palestinians use all the time is, this is just a subcontractor for the Israeli occupation. And the idea that the subcontractor should open a new shop in Gaza um, is one that doesn't necessarily fulfill many Palestinians' national dreams. In regards to the issue with uh, the Arab states, so I, I have an article pulled out up, and I, I'm going to be interviewing uh, this this expert as well. I'm I'm not sure I'm in agreement with him, but uh, Jason Pack wrote a piece for uh, Foreign Policy entitled "The Road to Middle East Peace Runs Through Doha," and he says, you know, we need to bring together Qatar, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates to administer post-war Gaza. What do you make of this line of thinking that, you know, we, we just have to get the Arab states to administer post-war Gaza? Because I myself am skeptical of that personally. Well, um, it would be a great idea if they would do it and could do it, and they won't and can't. So why won't they? Um in the first place, you know, Gaza is a problem that other people cause, not them. It's not their problem to solve. Um, and uh, and they've got all you know their own very, very specific interests. So again, um, it might be just kind of signing on to um, a, a losing project and one that really is essentially, you know, again, being the Israeli security subcontractor. And so again, they can't do it. I mean, some of those states, what they can do is provide financial assistance. Uh, you know, Qatar and the UAE certainly can. And so if there's going to be any rebuilding in Gaza or any you know, supply to keep the uh, to keep Gazans from starvation or even keep the schools open, Qatar and the UAE might be willing to kick in there. But the idea that they'd administer the place and certainly that they police a the state, these are these are small states that don't have that capability. Egypt administered Gaza from uh, uh, 1948 until 1967, does not seem to have regret having been tossed out by Israel in 1967, has never wanted it back, and is extremely concerned that what the Israelis really want to do is make things so unlivable in Gaza that people kind of gravitate over the border to Egypt. And so the idea that Egypt would go in there and take responsibility for Gaza is one that the Egyptian government is trying to emphasize as much as possible should be crossed off of everybody's list. Is there anything else you'd add to that um, assessment when it comes to the the Arab states like Qatar, because I, I'm really surprised that people think that these Arab states would want to take up that responsibility. Because I, the impression I get is that in a lot of ways, I'm not even sure Israel wants to have to administer uh, post-war Gaza. Yeah, there's, so there's 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 three aspects I would say of 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 what would be involved in running Gaza. One would be basic provision of you know social services, food, and so on. And that people are willing to do. The second is administration, running the schools, making sure the roads get repaired, overseeing reconstruction. That some people might help with, but the idea that they would take full responsibility, especially if an undefeated Hamas or, or basically a diminished Hamas said, wait a second, you people are, you know, 
collaborate as Quizlets and starts attacking them, that's not going to be a very attractive role. The third aspect is security. Who's going to be policing Gaza? And the idea that any of those actors would really want to go in and police and defend Gaza with their own internal security or military forces, I think it's just unimaginable. And I would, I should actually add one more thing. The idea that this could be done multilaterally, um, Arab states have never been very good at, you know, a few times they've tried to coordinate multilateral military security action, and it's never worked very well. So they don't really even have the mechanisms to do this. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think there's any historical precedents that would uh, go in favor of a sort of multilateral Arab state coordination of uh, administering post-war Gaza. Yeah. Um, and, and and they're very aware of this. So, so again, it's not very hard to come up with what should happen. Real, real quick in that regard, too. I think people talk about these shoulds, but I don't think what, what they don't address is I'm not sure there's any incentives for those shoulds to happen. Do you think that's a fair assessment on my part? I think I think that's very fair. I mean, most of these states do not, or potential actors do not have incentives. And not only that, whatever incentive they did have is rapidly disappearing. I mean, you know, the United Nations, for instance, which is sometimes trotted out, is just hearing incredible verbal abuse from Israeli diplomats. Yeah, you know, I was going to say we just saw the, uh, you know, the the spat between Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, and Israel. So. Yes. And, and then is, if, if Israel is supposed to then go ahead and say, oh, by the way, would you please take over? Um, that may not be a message that's received. But actually, there have been, at this point, close to 100 UN uh, employees have been killed. So this is not something where if you're a secretary general of the United Nations, you say, OK, who wants to volunteer to go to Gaza? So that, so so that's where the, uh, the shoulds begin to run into problems. I was going to say those UN officials were from the... Um... UNRWA, so the UN's Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East, right? That most of them are from there. There are some, I think there's some casualties from some other UN bodies. And there are others that Israel has basically said, you've got to leave. We're sick and tired of the UN. We're not renewing your visas. So then I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but this idea of, um, well, it, maybe Israel will just reoccupy uh I know that Netanyahu has said things that seem to allude to that, but I, I'm not even sure that that's going to happen. Uh, there may be an increased buffer zone, but I just I'm not sure Israel even wants that responsibility. Yes. Well, in a sense, I think that is either impossible or inevitable, depending on what you mean by occupation. If by occupation you mean a return to Israel administering and policing Gaza and making sure the sewage is 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 handled and the garbage is collected, that's impossible. They're never going to want to do that. But if you mean occupation in a different sense, um, I mean, in a sense, Israel never stopped occupying Gaza, right? It controlled the borders, it controlled the sea, it controlled the air. It controlled and hence the old uh, line that it's an open air prison. Yeah. Yes. And, um, and and so that didn't stop. And what Netanyahu seemed to be saying, I shouldn't say seemed to be saying, what he was saying point blank was actually something in the article that you mentioned I, I kind of anticipated because Israel is, you know, said it, it basically wants to destroy Hamas. 
Okay, fine. So it will cause a lot of damage. But this is a big organization that was born underground. It will probably survive in some way. So what happens when they launch an attack afterwards? Netanyahu's answer is clear. We Israel is responsible for its own security. We will continue to operate in Gaza and, and, and do what we need to do. So it's not going to be administering. It's not going to be, you know, if, if, if your house gets burgled, you won't call the Israeli police. But... Israel will be regularly launching raids. You mentioned buffer zones. One of the things that has happened in this fighting is that essentially it's been concentrated in certain areas where Israeli actions have been extremely destructive to housing. They've called for um, uh, civilians to evacuate these areas. And there seems to be some population shift going on in Gaza. It's an open question whether this is an Israeli, deliberate Israeli attempt to shift the concentration of people in Gaza to the south and to keep them divided up, or whether this is just an after effect of the fighting. But whichever way, whether it's intent or not, it is happening now. I think there's another elephant in the room with all of this, which is the stated goal is eliminate or eradicate Hamas. And I find it very interesting that people keep using that line and not really elaborating on what they mean by that at all. Because, yeah. you know, that's an abstract. You know, what does it mean to eliminate or eradicate Hamas? Because in a lot of ways, and I've seen pro-Palestinian activists say this, Hamas is almost like an idea, you know, in the sense of it's part of the most militant wing of, of resistance by Palestinians. You're not going to eliminate militant resistance as long as there's an occupation. So uh, do you think there's a possibility that this uh, idea of eradicating Hamas itself is foolhardy? Yes, and I think the Israelis have begun to realize that. I mean, Netanyahu's first statement was, if you're a member of Hamas, you're dead. Okay, now, the Nazi party was not treated that way. Islamic State was not treated that way. We didn't execute every single member. So that was that was that was a stunning statement. Um, and subsequent statements have sort of backed off a little bit or, or off the record or uh, background briefings have have backed off a little bit. And what Israel now seems to be talking about is diminishing Hamas's military capability. So it can't really threaten Israel and throwing it out of 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 government. And it can't do that completely, but it can cause an awful lot of damage to the organization. And I, I want to stress that word organization. I do hear this line that you just said, you know, Hamas is an idea. And I hear actually uh, even Blinken, Secretary of State Blinken mentioned it, but he said, we've got to destroy the idea. And yeah, in a sense, there is an idea there of, 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 of militant resistance. But Hamas is really an organization. If you talk to people from Hamas, you're really struck by the fact that they think, think Hamas is about Hamas. I mean, we are the embodiment or we're the defender of the Palestinian people. And so it's not the sort of thing that'll be easy to eradicate, not because it's in people's minds, but because it's basically woven into a segment of Palestinian society. It's just, it's in uh, it's the way some people relate to each other. It's got, you know, diplomatic wings. It's got political wings. It's got social services. This is just yeah, a very- Yeah, real quick, not, not to interrupt you, but I, I think people forget that is, uh, so there's teachers in Gaza that- would be considered part of Hamas. There are, you, you know, I, I mean, uh, the, the government, the de facto government in 
Gaza is Hamas. So you have a lot of people that aren't even part of the military wing uh, that are part of this uh, party or apparatus, this organization. Absolutely, yes. In 2006, when Hamas took over the Palestinian Authority government um, in after elections, and then in 2007, they lost the West Bank, but they kept Gaza. They've been doing the hiring. So that's now, what, 17 years of Hamas hiring for the civil service, for schools, and so on in Gaza. So the Gaza government is, at this point, pretty heavily Hamas. What's the implication of that? And I, I guess, I mean... I think there's a line that we see coming out of right-wing media that, you know, Hamas is just all the Gazans. And um, I mean, how are we to parse that there are, you know, teachers that are hired by Hamas? Should they be considered, you know, targets that, that like, how do we parse all of that? Well, I will tell you one experience as an American that makes it a little bit easier, and that's Baghdad 2003. The United States came in and said, okay, the army's gone, abolished, police abolished, Ba'ath Party abolished. Now let's get to work. And of course, it was a recipe for chaos. I mean, essentially abolishing the organs of state. So if, if that's really what's going to happen, um, then it would be tremendously uh, socially disruptive in a way that would probably just engender violence. I mean, that's in a sense the situation that helped create the Islamic State. So that is that that's a formula that um, sounds great if um, well, I don't want to say if you're if you if if, if you're um, um, overcharged on on the wrong hormones, but it's not one that really translates into policy. It, I, I hope this is an odd question, but are the are the bureaucrats, the teachers, the judges, inspectors and and police that, that Hamas has hired. I, I mean, is, is Hamas just, you know, uh, people that are ideologically committed to Hamas, or are there also people that are really just hired by them? I guess is what I'm asking. It's, I would say it's a combination of both. So Hamas probably has the support, I would guess, about 20% of the population. I mean, maybe quiet support, or maybe a third, something like that. But the enthusiastic support, 20 to 50%. Most people don't like Hamas. I was going to say there was there's been protest movements. There was that we want to live movement a few years ago. Yeah. Yes. Yes. If there were elections, um, Hamas would probably lose. I mean, right now, who knows? But um, they would probably lose. They would probably get something like 40, 45 percent of the vote. But about half of that would be anti-Fatah votes. So there, that's why I come up with a figure of about 20 percent supporting 20, 25 percent. Uh, when you talk about the civil service and so on, I mean, you got to remember, again, Hamas has been there. So Hamas is inevitable. Um, it, you, you know, it would be like, you know, going into a uh, East Bloc state in, um, in say, you know, 1975. You know, are you a communist or not? Well, some people might be Communist Party members because that's the way you get a job. Other people might be sort of, if they need to get something done, they'll call their friend who's a high up in the party or that sort of thing. It's just a structure that's there. And people don't ask themselves, am I enthusiastic supporter or not? That's just the way you get things done is by dealing with this. And that's the way Hamas has just been inevitable for, for, for God's its lives. Um, and, you know, if some people can't stand it. Some people do protest, but most of them are just resigned. Nobody's asking them for their opinion, so they don't have any. Uh, this gets into the sort of rock and a hard place that many Gazans are in, or I would say all Gazans at this point. But 
one thing that you say in the article that I really honed in on and I found very frightening, um, you know, in the case of this bombing, we're seeing buildings being just destroyed, uh, infrastructure uh, is being destroyed. I don't know how things like commerce, manufacturing and agriculture and other businesses uh, will go on after this. Um, you know, Gaza is becoming it's going to become completely dependent on humanitarian aid. And you write once a besieged enclave, Gaza will be reduced to a super camp of internally displaced persons. What do we mean by a super camp? So in a sense, it already has been a little bit of that. I mean, you know, most of the population of Gaza are, are refugees or descended from refugees. Um, but but what I mean by that is, um, there, you know, the economy in Gaza was already in bad shape. It was, you know, there was a siege and only, you know, a lot of materials would get in only if they were kind of carefully reviewed by the Israelis and, and so on. So a lot of the economy was kind of brought to a halt. Fishing, you know, was impossible off the Gaza coast. But some things did keep 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 operating. As a result of this war, nothing is going in and out of Gaza except for some humanitarian supplies. And the economy is completely shut down. Housing stock is going to be ruined. Um, and I referred earlier to this kind of population movement that seems to be going on. So those are the internally displaced persons. Those are people who are like from the north now in the south and so on. And, um, you know, without a strong uh, economy, without a set of, of, of you know, jobs, economic institutions, um, even, even political institutions that are operating to keep this place running, what you're really talking about is, yeah, that's where, that's the idea of some kind of super camp, 2 million people um, who are basically kept alive on international largesse. Can you talk about any precedents that exist? I know you write about this in the piece, but uh, precedents that exist for a Gaza that has had a disintegration of its central government. Yeah, and the piece mentioned the uh, what basically happened in 2006, 2000, 2005, 2006, 2007. So Israel was occupying Gaza if, you know, after 1967. It handed over control of most civil affairs to Israel. Um, um, uh, excuse me, Israel handed over most uh, uh, civilian affairs over to the Palestinian Authority. Uh, but then it withdrew in in 2005 and kind of set up a fence around Gaza. I mean, actually, the fence is actually older, but, but clamped down on Gaza an awful lot more. And so you had this period when governance in Gaza was kind of a little bit chaotic. The Hamas comes in, the uh, uh, the uh, government in Ramallah, you know, run by uh, Fatah and Abu Mazen, says to civil servants in Gaza, don't cooperate with them, stay home. So a lot of civil servants stay home. Hamas says, well, okay, fine. We'll just hire our own people. And so this is kind of going on 2004, 2005, 2006, 2007. And out of it, Hamas manages to kind of uh, create it's the party state that we were just talking about. But so that's a period in which governance in Gaza was really probably at its diciest. I was also going to say, I, I feel like I don't want listeners to misinterpret you because you do say in the article, uh, but Hamas's control has never been total. I think uh, the conversation we've been having, people may get that impression. So maybe you could explain that a bit. Well, yes. First, there is that period there. Um, but the second thing is um, Hamas has total control, I would say, of the Palestinian political arena. 
But, you know, we mentioned before UNRWA, the United Nations Relief Works Agency, which operates a lot of schools in Gaza, provides a lot of social services. Um, and that is actually a very powerful presence that Hamas is a little bit annoyed at. They need these schools run, but the UN is completely outside of their command. Uh, the United States actually has had some, uh, for, uh, before Trump, some USAID projects in, in, in Gaza. And they would, you know, do things like, you know, sewage. And so they wouldn't deal directly with Hamas government. But what that meant was an awful lot of welfare services and infrastructure projects and so on were not done by the Hamas government. They were done by international actors, international donors, the United States, UN, Europe, and so on. Can you give my listeners an idea of what you think post-war Gaza will look like, because uh, it is not a pretty picture, but I think people have to understand that, you know, the day after may not be the day after, after all, it may be even more dystopian than it's been in the past. Yeah. So in, in this sense, I think that um, um, Netanyahu and I agree, Israel will continue to play a security role in Gaza. Um, and that'll probably mean some presence there, maybe active, maybe intermittent. Um, I think Hamas will be deeply damaged um, as a result of this. And um, I think no international actor, combination of international actors is going to be able to step in. Palestinian Authority in the West Bank isn't going to be able to step in. So what you have is essentially a low-level version of what you see right now. No active military campaign, just periodic raids. Um, uh, no real ability for the government to operate. Probably ad hoc camp committees, neighborhood committees, some um, uh, local gangs, maybe some maybe some of these associated with Hamas, surviving Hamas members and that sort of thing, are kind of keeping basic law and order in the streets. So um, essentially what looks like a little bit of a failed state. Um, and a failed state with a very powerful actor next door that is actually not only next door, but sometimes coming through the front door. Um, that's kind of what it looks like. I think that's the most likely outcome. It's not a very pretty picture, but to get out of that scenario, I think, you know, just key ingredients are missing. So e even if Hamas is greatly damaged, you're saying there will still be these, uh, Hamas elements or Hamas related elements, sort of these self-appointed gangs that may or may not be associated with Hamas. There's still going to be Hamas attacks on one end and then probably continuous Israeli raids. And this will just be the sort of new normal for Gaza. Yes, um, for the for at least I mean, that's as far as I can see. Yes, I think that is the most likely. Is I I, I hope this isn't too blunt, but. Is there any silver linings at all? So I can spin out an optimistic scenario. That's not hard. And it's not totally impossible. Um, I say I give it a 10% chance. And, and here's the optimistic scenario. Regional states that have been anxious not to deal with this finally say, okay, we've got to handle this. Maybe they even take up, take up the, the, the idea. They drag the United States around along and the United States says, okay, yes, we are finally going to do what we've done a couple of times in the past, summon all the parties to 
Geneva, uh, you know, someplace like that, Rhodes. I mean, there have been these periodic attempts in Madrid. And we're going to have this big multilateral uh, process that's going to um, um, result in a, in a final settlement to this. Uh, Palestinians are so shell-shocked, but they managed to rally behind a national leadership that says, this is our best hope in a generation. It may be our last hope. Let's 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 go in. And Israel is so deeply disturbed um, and its political balance so d- deeply upset that somehow a leadership says, okay, we'll give it a try. That's the optimistic scenario. Um, and you hear hints of that from Blinken and Biden. You know, we're going to have to have revitalize the Palestinian Authority. We're going to have to do this and that. I don't think they have the diplomatic tools to do it. I'm not sure they have the uh, willingness to pressure Israel in election year that would be necessary. Um, Hamas is still there. What do you do with them? You can't you 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 can't include them. You can't exclude them. So that's why I say it's a ten percent chance. But it is still the most the only really optimistic scenario I can come up with. Why do you say the U.S. doesn't have the diplomatic tools if people are going to ask? Well, what are the reasons for that? Well, the first thing is that by aligning itself so thoroughly with the United with Israel right from the beginning, it's got a lot of mistrust in the region. Um, um, you, you, you know, you you. This is like you know George Bush after the invasion of Iraq. Um, just Biden is just not trusted in the region uh, first. So, you know, due diplomacy with, with regional states will be a problem. Second, the United States doesn't have a lot of credibility um, in doing anything that is long range. Um, it is, you know, he has been talking about this two-state solution for really started at the very end of the Clinton administration and never really done anything about I, it. I was going to say, not to interrupt you there, but I, I was talking to... Um... Professor Stephen Walt recently, and he said, you know, it, people will talk about a two-state solution, but in a lot of places uh, in D.C. and elsewhere, if you mention a two-state solution in private, people will just laugh at you is what he told me. Uh, it, it seems like it's not on the horizon. So this is this is actually one of the reasons I got involved in that one-state reality book. It was because... DC policymakers and European policymakers kept on talking about the two-state solution, and they sometimes meant it in private. If they were, you cut out there for a second. Uh, You said they sometimes meant it in. They sometimes meant it in private. Yes, yes, even in private, if they were in Washington or in Brussels. But if you were actually in uh, Jerusalem or Ramallah, people would look at you like. Wait a second. I remember eight track tapes. I remember floppy drives. I remember the two state solution. That's how they would look at you. And in the last three or four years, I think that cynicism about the two state solution has finally gotten into senior policymaking circles. And even the Biden administration wouldn't say, we need to get right back to the two state solution. They would say, well, that's the only one out there. It's just not not happening at the moment. So let's just keep the lid on. And they would say that basically in public. I was going to say in that regard, do we sort of see that with regards to the Abraham Accords? Because I feel like the Abraham Accords, really, it was about, you know, normalized relations between Israel and these Arab states like Saudi Arabia, but, you know, essentially put Palestine, that issue off the table. Yes. 
That's exactly what they were about. I mean, I think for the Trump administration, that was the plan. For the Biden administration, it wasn't that they wanted to eliminate the Palestinian issue, but they didn't want to deal with it. And so they, it didn't bother them that they were that they were basically shoving it down the agenda. Has there been an issue with uh, this question has come up a lot uh, and most people I've had on have agreed that this is the case, although I've had one dissenter, uh, Steve Simon, said that this was not the case. Has the issue of Palestine, has there been an issue with kicking the can down the road on the Palestine question? Oh, gosh, yes, absolutely. I mean, sometimes... Um, I would say that's actually what happened because people were living in an unreal world. I think that was true in the you know second Bush administration. I think that was true in the Obama administration. Um, you know, they sometimes it was true. For instance, with 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 John Kerry, he really wanted to broker an agreement. Um, by that time, Obama, I think some people in the White House had given up on it, but the Secretary of State really wanted to, but he pursued it in an absolutely unrealistic way. So he was he didn't think he was kicking the can down the road, but by continuing to mouth the two state solution that nobody believed in, he was effectively doing that. Um, and then with um, Trump, I think there was a move to, OK, this is over. Palestinians have to accept what they got um, is over. And and that's when uh, kicking it down the road, kicking the can down the road really became a matter of formal policy. I want to talk a little bit about Netanyahu and, and the Netanyahu government. And of course, now we have uh, Benny Gantz. There's a, a unity government. But w- with regards to Netanyahu uh, and just the Likud party more generally, it seems like relations between uh, Netanyahu and, and Likud party um, officials of the past and the U.S., it's always been kind of shaky, You know, even going back to uh, George H.W. Bush and Yitzhak Shamir. And then, of course, I, I think there was a lot of tensions uh, with the Obama administration at various times with Netanyahu over the West Bank settlements. And I think we've even seen Obama reference that a bit recently. Uh, it seems like uh, Netanyahu is a very belligerent force, if if that's not too strong a word. And I, I, I see a lot of people saying, well, you know, once Netanyahu is, you know, out of power, he may even end up in jail at this point things will get better. Uh, what do you think of that assessment? Because I I want to find that silver lining, but I'm not so sure of that one even myself. Yeah. So I would say um, Netanyahu is more effect than cause. Um, in other words, he's somebody who's been produced by this situation. Um, he, tactically, he's a good politician. He has no real strategic vision except you know, kick the can down the road. You know, this is, you know, we want all this territory. We don't want all these people. How is that going to work? Well, there's no way it will really work. So that's always fine. We don't have to move in any direction. We can just keep things right as they are. Um, and if it blows up, it'll be on somebody else's watch. Um, well, it blew up on his watch. Um, but I think that's kind of been his attitude. What comes after Netanyahu, and I, I think it's the chances are he will be replaced uh, at, at, at the end of all this, um, it's not clear it's going to be somebody with a, a with a better strategic vision. If it's a strategic vision, it might be one of the, what I call the nationalist right, uh, nationalist religious right, which is essentially Israel is the state of the Jews, 
It has, it belongs to all, it, it owns all this territory. We understand that there are some people who are not Jews and they're welcome to stay as long as they're peaceful. And that's the explicit position of people who are actually in the current cabinet. Um, and to some Israelis, that formula will sound a little bit better right now. So what comes after Netanyahu could be worse. It could be different. It could be that some Israelis wake up and say, okay, we finally got to come to terms with the Palestinian national movement. Um, but but I think the, the first scenario is a little bit more likely. Could you speak a little bit more to the issue of the religious nationalists, right? Because it, so in the past, I have talked about these figures like Itamar Ben-Giver and um, Bezalel Smotrich. I've, I've talked to Israelis about them. And I think sometimes uh, my Israeli human rights friends have maybe overstated the influence of uh, someone like Ben-Giver uh, because he, he's really such an odious figure. But a person like Smotrich uh, seems to be more um, the respectable end of that, or at least respectable presenting in some ways. Uh I guess what I'm asking is, uh, who are the faces of the religious uh, Zionist right? And how big could their influence be in the future? I mean, because a lot of people are saying, you know, this is going to kill the sort of extreme right in Israel. And you're saying that may not necessarily be the case. Yeah. So what I would say is the short term effect on them has been um, to contain them a little bit because the governing coalition was brought, it was the case that Netanyahu needed them all the time. If they left the cabinet, he was, his government would fall and they would regularly threaten. Now that's not the case anymore. So so they're still in positions of, of ministerial authority, but short term, their, their influence has gone down. Um, who are they? Yeah, they're people, I mean, they're, they've got different kind of flavors Ben Gvir is a flamethrower, you know, the one who basically just kind of is kind of in your face rhetorically. And Smosh uh, is a little bit, yeah, a little bit smoother, but he's the one who articulated that vision that I that I just uh, mentioned. This belongs to the Jews and non-Jews are, are willing to stay as long as they don't cause trouble. I mean, I'm, I'm summarizing, but I'm not being unfair. So, so those now do they represent um, this Israeli society? No, they represent a segment. You probably about like Hamas is twenty percent, so maybe maybe a little bit less than that. Um, but like Hamas, they are um, they're active. They know what they want, and they know how they're going to get it. And so, what they've been doing during this fighting has been to essentially harass Palestinians in the West Bank, um, or people like uh, Gavir haven't been doing the harassing themselves, but they've been denying it's going on or saying, look, these are just like local clashes, um, it must be the Palestinians' fault, and so on. And so there's actually been population movements on the West Bank of villages being depopulated because settlers make their life, the lives of the Palestinians living there unbearable. So that's why I see them as a continuing factor. I don't think they'll ever run the state but they're running parts of it or driving policy in some areas in ways that I think, um, you know, kind of advance their vision over the long term. Do you think there's parallels to that um, with regards to U.S. politics? Oh, gosh. Well, there's certainly a, a kind of an in-your-face, never-apologize style. Um, you know, somebody criticizes you, hit them hard back. Um um, so I think there, there, there are some, so we, I mean, we even see that now with the Israeli foreign ministry, which, 
you know, used to be kind of the uh, the, the good cop um, in in diplomatic relations. Now, all of a sudden, you know, like the the, uh, the episode of the with the UN Secretary General that you mentioned, um, I think Israeli politics. It's always was like rough and tumble internally, but but now it's pretty aggressive externally as well. Before we close out, is there anything that I failed to mention that you think uh, is a matter of uh, great import right now when it comes to talking about these issues? And actually, what I want to ask you, I feel like there hasn't been a lot of attention on the West Bank. I've seen some in the media, but I don't see anyone talking about the West Bank. And I think that situation is getting increasingly bad. I have contacts um, in Ramallah uh, that are very associated with the Palestinian movement that are very worried about it. Uh, do you think people are, I mean, I understand why all eyes are on Gaza, but do you think there needs to be more attention on what's happening in the West Bank? Well, long-term, yes. So I spent part of this past summer on the West Bank um, and I just came away just, depressed by what I heard because people were alienated, people were angry. Um, and I remember, just remember talking to, uh, you know, several youth groups and all of them were kind of, in, in one sense, they were kind of like neat people. These were people who were like, you know, um, they maybe had barely been outside of their hometown, but they were wired in through social media. They were kind of pretty savvy. Um, for the first time, you know, I'd be talking to people who'd spent all their lives there, but their English was better than my Arabic. So we sometimes we usually talked in English. I mean, it was just, they were in that sense kind of cosmopolitan and worldly people. But when it came to politics, they were like, there's no future here. Uh, we can't leave. We can't stay. Anybody who does anything is good. You know, somebody who knives an Israeli soldier, all power to him. Resistance is good. And I just thought, this is a pretty worrying um, society that is uh, that is being created here. And it may not explode tomorrow. I didn't expect it to explode in Gaza, but and it, didn't, it hasn't exploded yet in the West Bank. Um, but but this is not a recipe for a, you know, a healthy society in the future. Yeah, it's very concerning to me. And I, I often don't know what to tell people uh, because, you know, I, I've seen the 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 hilltop youth um, who engage in a lot of violence. And I, I don't I mean, I don't know what to tell Palestinians that have to deal with that uh, or West Bank residents that have to deal with that because, you know, I, I can understand why they're going to resist that. It, it just seems like a powder keg. Yeah. And um, even if it's not a powder cake that's going to like explode suddenly, it is going to to to, to simmer and probably deteriorate. Uh, it has been doing that. And I don't see any countervailing trends. Since you've been in the West Bank, can you speak to what the conditions are like? Like what actually happens there for an American that knows nothing about what the West Bank is like? I mean, I've heard that there's certain streets that Palestinian Palestinians can't go down. What's the truth of all this? It really varies from place to place. I mean, one thing I should say is, you know, West Bank. You think it's like, you know, you know, it's a, it's a world conflict zone. It's like Ukraine. It's like China. So, and um, you know, no, it, it's it's small. Um, it's a collection of medium sized towns or cities. You know, uh, Ramallah, Nablus, Hebron, and Janine, and so on, and um, and then some kind of rocky countryside uh you know desert and hills um and um 
it's dotted with Israeli settlements, and some of these settlements are like are are are, are big, and they sometimes are in strategic locations, you know, hilltops, you said, or major road junctions, or, or that sort of thing. So you're never that far from an Israeli settlement, um, and um, and uh, Israel has checkpoints, basically controlling major roadblocks. It's in normal times; it's not hard to move around the West Bank from place to place. Um, but but it means that Israel can clamp down at any time, and it's really difficult to get off the West Bank. As, I mean, it's not so hard to get off to Jordan in, in normal times. You can't use uh, the Israeli airport. You can't get into Jerusalem unless you've got a special permit, and so on. So it's just, it's a place where, um, I would say, not necessarily on a daily basis, but on a weekly basis, you're reminded in terms of sharp constraints that you're under occupation. Now the, the 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 situation you talked about about you know you can't go down this street and so on within a city the only place it's that bad is in Hebron. I, I also wanted to ask with regards to the West Bank. Um, I've been told the situation with the settlers uh, can get very confusing for people because I know there's there's settlers on the sort of outskirts I guess that are just there because it's it's cheaper to live there and they're not really engaged in like the violence of the hilltop youth are there different types of settlers in the west bank is what i'm asking oh gosh yes yeah now this is something i i, I know less well but i've seen a little bit of first for israelis their mental map there isn't necessarily a 67 line right so what is a settlement what isn't a settlement sometimes is clear i i was gonna say i've heard some people tell me that there are settlers in the west bank that don't even conceive of themselves as such there is a lot of them yeah, I mean, they're just living in, um, you know, it, it's, 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 uh, you know, I live in uh, states in, uh, in the uh, Washington, D.C. area. And, you know, if you ask people, are you, do you live in D.C., Maryland, or Virginia, they would consider these neighborhoods not sharp political boundaries. They wouldn't say, I'm, a, I'm, I'm from D.C., but I'm a settler in Maryland. I mean, it, it's just, people just don't think, people are sometimes not even aware when they, when they, when they've crossed the 67 line. And those tend to be gathered around major cities, um, Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, especially. Um, the ones that are farther out, the ones that are uh, sometimes not fully authorized, sometimes absolutely illegal, those are the ones that tend to be more ideological. Or again, there's Hebron, where they're basically right there in the middle of the city. In closing, is there anything else you want to say? I know a lot of my listeners... Uh... I have a lot of listeners that are Palestinian American, Jewish American. Um, I have friends in both Israel and um, in places like Gaza. What do you want to say in closing? Because uh, this is just a very depressing situation, and that's putting it mildly. Yeah, it is a depressing time, and I would say the main depressing elements are are you know just the number of lives that are ruined. I mean. 1,400 Israelis were slaughtered because they were Israelis, and a lot of most of them were civilians. Um, that's that's how this phase began. That wasn't the beginning of the conflict by any means, but that was how this phase began, or this immediate crisis began. And the number of casualties in Gaza, and who, at this point we don't know because there aren't political authorities who can count them fast enough, but 10,000, something like that. And um, and so it's just a really, really rough time. But what's more, with just what's almost as discouraging, I shouldn't say even even that. What is discouraging 
less discouraging only by comparison, I think is just the state of debate and the way people go shrill, the way that people talk within their own bubbles. And that makes it just a very scary moment uh, for lots of people. Um, you know, we thought we belonged to the society and now we don't feel welcomed. Um, I think it's probably, the situation is probably worse for Palestinian advocates um, than for Israel advocates, but you hear this talk from both of them. Um, and, um, and, 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 uh, and that's bad. And I'm just hoping that there will be a time when, not when this can be magically resolved, but at least when people can talk civilly with each other about it. That doesn't just, that just doesn't seem to be now. Two more things really briefly here with regards to the numbers we're seeing uh, of dead in Gaza. Uh, one of the things I've seen, and I don't want to call it a, I don't want to be blunt about it and necessarily call it a propaganda line, but something I keep hearing a talking point is we can't trust this number of over 10,000 because it's the Ministry of Health in Gaza saying it, and that's Hamas controlled. How do you respond to people that make that claim? Oh, gosh. Well, okay. Um, I never have. Um, there's a lot of people who are dead, um, and that there's no disputing that. Um, and Israel made very, very clear from the very beginning, hey, there's going to be a lot of civilian casualties. Um, and they all basically seem to be trying to inure their own population, but also international, especially American population, saying, you know, prepare yourselves. And part of that was like disqualifying in any kind of, 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 of numbers. I'm not an actuarial scientist. I do know that, you know, Hamas has basically been in charge of the Ministry of Health, and these are civil servants for quite some time. I think they're probably the most reliable numbers out there. I don't say that just because somebody is uh, from Hamas or from an organization that's controlled by Hamas, every word they say is a lie. Um, I don't think that's the case. I think there are certainly Hamas members who exaggerate and some who lie, and there are some Israelis who exaggerate and lie. But I think there's no disputing the underlying fact that this has been enormously destructive of people's lives. And if it's 8,000 or 10,000, we're talking, that's the order of magnitude we're talking about. Do, do you think it's important to know, I mean, it sounds like some of these civil servants in Gaza may not even really be ideologically committed to Hamas. They're just working for them. Um, yeah, no, I think a lot of them are like that. Like, yeah, as, as, as I said earlier, I mean, Hamas is just there. It is it is inevitable. So you ask them, what are they committed to? It's like getting a paycheck and getting home at night. The very last question I'll ask you, I promise to let you go after this. Thank you for staying over time, by the way. Uh, with regards to the future, uh, in the immediate, we're talking about something very dystopian, Um but I think the real issue is I feel like this is just going to keep happening over and over again. I feel like um, with all these civilian uh, deaths, you're going to have survivors that are radicalized by this, you know, a, a form of blowback, if you will. And I feel like, you know, right now you can, you know, reduce Gaza to rubble, but 10 to 20 years, you may just get more radicals that will try to attack Israel again. So, is there an issue where we're just in a repeating cycle um, in which, you know, Israel retaliates in a very, uh, some would say, excessive way? Uh, I would say excessive way. 
that leads to more terrorism down the line. And really, the political solution is never dealt with. I think that's a real possibility. Um, and um, but again, I think it might happen on a lower level. You know, Hamas, this is essentially what the, the future that Netanyahu offers. And he's basically saying we're going to cut down Hamas as a military force. So they won't be able to do something like this again. We'll keep things down to a manageable level. Um, and I think at least short term, that's the outcome. And longer term, again, you know, in the long term, we're all dead. But I don't see anything, anything, any other force working that, that would be uh, uh, able to counteract that that has emerged yet. I guess that that leads to one more question, which is uh, Netanyahu wants to make it manageable, but he wasn't able to manage it in the first place. So is, it, is there a possibility that um, he won't be able to make this situation with Hamas manageable? Well, in a sense, that's happened. It is not manageable now, but um, it depends on what you mean by manageable. And um, in a sense, the situation looks a little bit like on the West Bank today with periodic attacks. Um, what I would say is kind of low-level conflict. Um, the question is whether um, Israelis and Palestinians, the question actually not just whether Palestinians and Israelis will tolerate that, the question is what alternative do they have? And and at this point, they don't. Neither one has a good alternative. Um, I mean, you know, part of the blame for that, I think, lies in international actors, including the United States, who are not forceful enough in pressing an alternative. But right now, they don't have one. I want to thank you again, Nathan J. Brown, for coming on Parallax News. I I hope if we speak again, it will be on um, uh, better terms, better, just not this situation. <laughs> But, yeah. you know, uh, I appreciate that you're being clear headed about this and calling it like you see it rather than um, being Pollyannish about it. OK. All right. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And I hope I haven't left your listeners too depressed. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you found my conversation with Nathan J. Brown, informative and educational. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Parallax Views. I cannot continue providing you these shows without your support. So please, again, patreon.com slash Parallax Views. Your contribution to that Patreon page means a great deal right now if you can afford it. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm... I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff 
It's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.